Well, welcome to Thursday nights. Pray that you're ready to open your Bibles and take a journey along with the Apostle Paul and the church at Corinth, a very right-side-up church in a very upside-down world then, and the same is true for us tonight. Many of the things that the Apostle Paul are now going to address, we would kind of look at it and go, well, what has that got to do with 2018 in California? Because probably most of you, has anybody seen a temple of Aphrodite anywhere in the South Bay? I didn't think so. There was one. I'd kind of like to know where it's at. You, you probably haven't seen that. You probably haven't seen people making meat sacrifices uh, to a false god somewhere near your home. That was the reality then, but can I tell you there are just as many idols in our day and time as there were then, but our idols come in a little different form. Our idols come as power. Our idols absolutely come as materialism and wealth. Um, Probably some of you drove your idol to church tonight. We still worship some things, don't we? You just stop for a minute and think about it. There are things that occupy an awful lot of our time, our talent, and our treasure. We put our focus and our attention on things other than the Lord at times, don't we? We we are worshipers by nature. God created us that way. And so now as we begin this little journey here in chapter 8, First 13 verses here in 1 Corinthians, a message I've entitled Christians and Conscience. Would you pray with me? Father, we thank you that the message of the Bible is timeless. It transcends time because it's your word and you transcend time. And we pray that you'd speak to us tonight as we study We ask that you'd encourage those who are maybe beat down by the world, that you'd lift up, Lord, those who are downcast. I pray that you'd take those who are hurting tonight and tend to their wounds. And God, for those that have come and perhaps joy is on their heart, God, thank you. And would they take that joy and share it with someone? Father, we thank you for the beauty of the body of Christ. And pray that you take your church tonight and make us just a little stronger because we met with you. We bless you. We praise you. We ask all this in the wonderful name of our Savior Jesus. Amen. Amen. Verse 1, 1 Corinthians chapter 8. And now concerning things offered to idols. And so hover there for a minute. Now you know why I ask you the question. You probably don't have a temple of Aphrodite near you, right? You you see, in that day and time, a vast majority of things were offered to idols. People made offerings of nearly anything and everything. And that could have been your food. That could have been a piece of the wood of your boat if you were a fisherman. It may have been a mud brick from your house. People offered up virtually everything to what we now know would be false gods, idols. And they came in many different shapes and sizes. And while I wouldn't encourage you to take the filters off of your computer and do a search of false gods because you'll get some things that you don't want to see, the world is still filled with people who worship false idols. And so the apostle was asked some questions. Those questions are now being answered here in this first letter that Paul wrote 2,000 years ago to this church in a very heathen world. Notice how he answers this question. We're not sure exactly the temple, but we know the people and the culture. And so very clear uh, where the apostle Paul is going with this. We know that we all have knowledge. He's talking about raw fact, and he's talking about Christians having the knowledge of God. 
So he's looking at this from two different perspectives. There are things that you know that are right. Amen? Most of you believe in the law of gravity. Anybody in here not believe in the law of gravity? Because we're going to take you up on the roof and prove it to you. (laughs) That you will accelerate towards the ground uh, at about 10 meters per second squared. The law of gravity says that there's a force that's acting upon your body and it will continue to act on your body until you would reach the center of the earth at which you would then be pushed out the other side of the center of the earth and eventually you would then re-encounter gravity when you came out the other side because gravity is a force that must be reckoned with. It's a truth. We all have knowledge or things that we know. There's truth in this world. Things regarding the physical world, many of them are immutable. They're unchanging. Most of you know that the speed of light is 187,000 miles roughly per second. You see, there are things that we know. But there's also God's knowledge. And that knowledge is actually righteousness. And general knowledge and righteousness are not necessarily the same thing. Because you can have all the facts and figures correct and absolutely not be okay with God. You can get everything pinned down and not be okay with the one who created everything. Paul's got righteousness in view. And so he says knowledge puffs up. Any of you ever met someone that I like to affectionately call a windbag? A sack of hot air? A bloviator? A pontificator maybe for some of you? Yeah, you, you've met people who they're filled with knowledge. There's an awful lot of college sophomores and juniors that think that the world now revolves around them because they've taken two, three years of college courses, and of course, they now know how the universe works. Knowledge in and of itself is good, but it can also puff us up. It can also make us think more highly of ourselves than we ought to. But love edifies. The word edify or edification means to build up. Knowledge puffs up. Edification, that love builds up. He's contrasting these things. And if anyone thinks that he knows anything, he knows nothing yet as he ought to know. But if anyone loves God, this one is known by him. The supremacy of God's love in our lives should not ever be pushed aside for any reason. The love of God in us is the thing that actually constrains us to do right. It is the love of God that motivated Jesus to go to the cross. It's the love of God that's drawn you to repentance in the first place and a right relationship with the Lord. It is the love of God that is at the heart and the center of virtually everything that we are as a child of God. Do we have truth in our lives? We absolutely do. Is God's moral character unchanging? It absolutely is. But we are God's children because he first loved us. Amen? Love is always supreme. The law is never supreme. The law serves love, not the other way around. Love does not serve the law. The law serves love. And therefore, concerning the eating of things offered to idols, and this is where it gets a little crazy for us, you know, is he talking about good barbecue? What's going on here? The answer is, yes, he actually is talking about good barbecue. (laughs) And we know that an idol is nothing in the world. You see, he's he's speaking we, he's including himself, he's saying we, who's the uh, we part of? He is a part of we who are the children of God, the body of Christ. He said, so we know, you and I know, you know, I'm just going to be honest with you. When I walk into a Chinese restaurant or a Japanese restaurant and I see a nice little fat golden guy in the lobby, 
and he's smiling and happy, and he's just sitting there, you know, oming me in, I'm not offended because I know that that golden Buddha has zero power over me as a child of God. Amen? I, I don't, oh, no. I don't think for a second that that, that thing is going to have power over me. Because I know in whom I have believed and that he is able to keep me whom he has committed under the day of Christ Jesus. My hope belongs in Jesus. But I'm a mature Christian. And there are a lot of people who walk in there and they're, you know, they go get their little stick of incense and So what do, we do, what do we do with that? That there is no other God but the one. There is one God in three persons. That's why the beginning of the Shema is the Lord, the Lord thy God is one. There's one God. Existent in three persons, the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit. So all these other little gods, we could actually look at that. You know, I'm not really too worried about that. For even if there are so-called gods, little g, whether in heaven or on earth, there are many gods and many lords. People worship a lot of different things. He's making the very case which I made to you. Your God is what you worship. So there are God's little g in this world. They're what people worship who's not the one true and living God. And there are many lords. The word lord simply means master. People are mastered by a lot of things. Alcohol, drugs, sexual relationships, money, power, position, People are mastered by many things, and they worship many things. The question is, what's our response? Because, you know, there are people that honestly believe that politics is a god. There are people that believe that money is god. There are people that believe that power is god. How do we act towards that? What should we do as the body of Christ? Yet for us there is one God and one Father of whom are all things. You see, I actually believe that in the beginning God. The first words of your Bible created the heavens and the earth. And the book of Colossians even further goes on to say that all things were created by him and for him and without him was nothing made that was made. I I believe that. But not everybody believes that. There are a few people that believe that goo became you. That monkeys became man. That you're just a bunch of accidents that all happen to fortuitously happen in one place. I, I think both biblically and scientifically I can prove otherwise. But there are people who believe that and they genuinely believe it. They will cling to that with the very breath of their life. There are people that believe that a baby inside the womb of a mother is nothing more than tissue. When I believe my Bible says that God alone knows your thoughts before you have any of them. So while you are still a zygote, while you are recombination of of DNA, there's a new molecule that's being formed and those chromosomes are joining together from the sperm and the egg. I happen to believe that God's at work there And in the instant that that happens, that is a new, unique, and totally separate life 
that happens to reside within the womb of its mother for nine months. But there are people that don't believe that. What do we say to them? How do we react when other people have a well-held view? They consciously think that they're right. What do we do as the body of Christ? And we for him, the one Lord Jesus Christ, through whom are all things and through whom we live. However, there is not in everyone that knowledge. Do you notice what he says? You ever wondered why you have a problem explaining biblical things to people who don't know Jesus? You just got the answer. Not everyone has that knowledge. You are literally speaking a foreign language to an unbeliever when you talk to them about righteousness. God can give them instantaneous understanding, but the fact of the matter is, spiritual things are spiritually appraised in the carnal mind, just as the Apostle Paul said, cannot know them. So don't be surprised when an unbeliever doesn't believe. I know that's hard to imagine. There's a reason that someone who doesn't know the Lord is referred to in Scripture as an unbeliever because they don't believe. They don't have that knowledge. What do we do with that? How do we respond? And here he goes on to explain it now. For some, with consciousness of the idol, until now eat it as a thing offered to an idol. In other words, they literally believe that that idol is real. They offered the meat to the idol, and in doing so, they're paying homage to the idol, and the idol can do something for them. I can tell you there are a lot of people that poured their lives into making money and offered themselves on the altar of materialism, and they've paid homage and they've paid their dues to that God only to find out later that God doesn't even care about them. But they sure believed. That's why they put in 75 hours a week. That's why they allowed their family to be destroyed. That's why they switched spouses multiple times. That's why they gave up everything in search of the blessing of the false god. That's why they did it. That's what was going on. They believed in the power of the false god to reward them. And then all of a sudden, that plan is revealed for what it is, a lie. But make no mistake, they believed in that God. And they acted as though they believed in that God. Until now, they eat it as a thing offered to an idol, and their conscience, being weak, is defiled. You see, when they get turned around, now all of a sudden, have you ever met somebody who is an absolute legalist because they have been delivered from something? Say, yes, amen. It's the weirdest thing in the world, but when we have been delivered from a specific God, a path of sin, maybe that's drugs or maybe that's alcohol, or a sexual relationship or materialism, when you've been delivered, here's what usually happens. You become the world's number one defender of righteousness in that area. It's like, man, you smelled an alcohol. You, you have wine corks in your house. Good Lord, man, what's wrong with you? Most of us have done that, haven't we? God delivers you from some pattern of sinful behavior, and all of a sudden you're walking with the Lord, you understand that that's not good for the child of God, and all of a sudden anybody who even gets anywhere near that, oh man, you're going to lose your arm for that one. You become a legalist. Here's the problem. It wasn't being a legalist that brought you to faith in Christ that healed you from those things. It was the love of God. And now all of a sudden you think that if you beat to death that poor person in this area of living, that somehow they'll be better for it. Can I tell you, your Bible says something very different. 
It is the love of God that draws men to repentance. It's not whacking people over the head with the holy baseball bat of righteousness. We like to do that. It's like... Home run. The apostle speaking to the area of conscience in each one of us. And I want you to see this. You see, but food, because they're weak, they think they're going to be defiled, but food does not commend us to God. Really. You see, you probably know that. If you're here today, I'm pretty sure that you'd be okay knowing that. For neither if we eat are we better, neither if we boycott Walmart because they buy Chinese goods are we better, neither are we better if we try and find a mini-mart that does not sell alcohol, neither are we better if we don't go to Disneyland because they have gay employees, neither are... Ooh. Jeffrey Scott Gill, did you say that? (laughs) You see any of yourself in this? Neither are we better if we eat, or if we do not eat, are we the worse? So for those of us who are prone to say, I don't have TV. (laughs) Oh! I only smoke cigars, and I don't inhale. You know what I'm saying? We all got our little issues, don't we? And we walk around, and like, I only watch the Discovery Channel. You see, you thought this was written to Corinth 2,000 years ago. It was written all y'all. But beware lest somehow this liberty of yours becomes a stumbling block to those who are weak. You see, it works both ways. You can have the liberty to watch TV. You you can have the liberty to, maybe you're that person that you want to imitate Charles Spurgeon and you've got a pipe. And every once in a while you pack that thing with tobacco I know where some of you were going not buds because that will change your mind and that will be sin but see you might have a liberty you got something that you're okay doing the Bible doesn't clearly say yeah, if you do this it's wrong Beware, lest somehow this liberty of yours become a stumbling block to those who are weak. For if anyone sees you who have the knowledge eating at an idol's temple, will not the conscience of him who is weak be emboldened to eat those things offered to idols? You see, you can help somebody fall into sin. By taking your liberty and flaunting it. By taking that which maybe is okay for you and encouraging a weaker brother to do the same and it's not okay for them. And because of your knowledge shall a weak brother perish for whom Christ died. But when you thus sin against the brethren, do you notice what it says? When you take your liberty... You see, because we could all sit around and go, oh, you know, it's, it, you know I, it's, it's okay. That's not, you're not going to hell for that one. Somebody comes to me and they, they, they say, well, you know, I smoke. Am I going to hell? I'll go, nope. You're going to die from it, but you're not going to go to hell from it. God probably doesn't want you doing it, but there's no place in Scripture that says if you want to suck on the end of a cigarette, 
which contains massive amounts of carcinogen and destroy your body so that you eventually will die from it, that God's going to necessarily you know, punish you eternally. It, you can't make an eternal case for it. I can make a case that it's your temple, which is the temple of the Holy Spirit that you're destroying. You probably not want to do that. But will not the conscience of him who is weak Will not that 12-year-old who decides to go past the same vape shop that you go into possibly be emboldened? Ooh, now we've got a different issue, don't we? See how that works? You see, it does matter what you do. It matters very much what you do. Because there very likely could be a weak brother or a weak sister that's watching what you do and they're going, if that's what a mature Christian does, then I am now at liberty to do that. So be very careful. But when you thus sin against your brethren and wound their weak conscience, you sin against Christ. And therefore, if food makes my brother stumble, I will never eat meat lest I make my brother stumble. Let's unpack this a little bit. The Bible and barbecued all burgers. And, and so I gave you some of these things. Should, should we shop on Sunday? I've had people say, well, I shouldn't shop on Sunday. You know, if your conscience tells you you shouldn't shop on Sunday, don't shop on Sunday. If you think you're going to stumble your brother or sister because you're shopping on Sunday, then don't shop on Sunday. You see, I think we sometimes throw out the issue of conscience as if it doesn't matter anymore, and yet the Bible says that we are not to wound another's conscience and we should obey our own. That's why God gave it to you in the first place. The whole world is pagan, amen? So let's be real honest here. How many of you think that you can escape being in this world? Didn't Jesus say, you're in it, but you're not of it? I do not wish that you would be out of the world, but rather that you'd be a light to this world. So God's not asking us to remove ourselves from every situation. He's not telling you that you can't go to those family functions where it's not going to be ideal. I got into a conversation with a young man who was going to school uh, to get a degree in economics. He wanted to be a stockbroker, a stock advisor. He wanted to get his professional financial license so that he could sell securities and do all those kind of things. And he proudly came into my office and told me he had put together a mutual fund uh, that contained absolutely nothing offensive to God. And I said, oh, well, I'm interested. Let me hear about this. He started going down the list, and he had in there, you know, companies like Merck, a medical company that just happens to make about half of the world's abortifants, things that cause abortion, medical, RU486. He went down the list, and, well, this is a division of Seagram's that doesn't actually make alcohol. Oh, so you think that the profits from one part of the company doesn't go to the rest. The world is so interconnected, it is impossible. Let me tell you this. It is impossible for you to be fully withdrawn from any and every kind of evil in this world as long as you're here. It's impossible. You're going to see things you shouldn't see. You're going to hear things you shouldn't hear. You know, because just in case you haven't figured this out, you cannot drive on the freeways of Southern California with blinders on and earplugs in unless you want to die and kill other people with you. But as you're driving down the freeway, what are you going to see on the billboards? You're like, can't look at that, can't look at this. Pretty soon you're not even looking at the freeway. You have to trust that God is alive in your life and he is able to defend your mind from the attacks of the wicked one. You put on that helmet of salvation, and you get out there and preach Christ and him crucified. But you can't withdraw from the world. 
It isn't going to do a bit of good. The kingdom will not advance if every last believer grabs their family and puts them in a nice little huddle and they move off to some place in the middle of Montana and build a bomb shelter and live in it. That's not God's plan for the church. God's plan for the church is so let your light shine before men who do not know Jesus that they will see your good works and glorify your Father who is in heaven. So that means you're going to be around some unbelievers, some unsaved people. And you know what? They're going to cuss, and they're going to drink, and they're going to smoke, and they're going to say things. And I'm not suggesting to you that you dip yourself in the sewer of the world, but it's unavoidable. That's part of being here instead of there. One day you're going to be there, and all that will be over. But for right now, you need to be careful. So the question is not, can you remove yourself from it, but what do you do in it? How do you conduct yourself in this world to have the maximum impact for the king and for the kingdom? That is what Paul's addressing here. How do we as people who know that those idols are false idols, how do we as people who understand fully that Satan is a murderer, he seeks to kill, destroy, and wipe people out if he possibly can. How do we live in this world? In other words, what is a believer to do? You see, whether you are in Corinth or whether you're in L.A., there's a couple of things for you. A mere association in all social settings with unbelievers is an absolute impossibility. You can't do it. I've actually had people come to me, well, I don't even talk to my family anymore because they're not saved. I want to punch them. It's like, seriously? You don't talk to your unbelieving family? Who's going to tell them about Jesus? You think think their drug-dealing friend's going to do that? You've been called to be salt, preservative, and light, illumination to a dead and dark world. You can't pull yourself out of all these things. But you can do something with the situations you've been placed into. If we take the church out of the world, we are their best hope. We are how they're going to hear about Jesus. We don't want to be worshiping false gods. We want to be telling them about the true and the living God. Amen? If you're looking for completely Christian gatherings, I haven't found one yet. If you think coming here is going to be a completely Christian gathering, let me just tell you, you're wrong. We have people constantly that come through the front doors of this church and praise God they do. That not only don't know Jesus, they're messed up like you can't imagine. We want them to come here. Do we want them to defile the house of the Lord? Of course not. But the fact of the matter is you're going to come in contact with the world because you're in the world. And so Paul begins to unwrap this, and he says to us, look, we need to take every opportunity we can to tell them about him, about Jesus. Knowledge of this world just puffs people up. But love, real love, God's love, changes people's lives. We need to have that spirit of love. And by the way, it's not love without truth. It's truth in love. Exactly what the Apostle Paul told the church at Ephesus in chapter 4. He said, look, speak ye therefore the truth to one another in love. You see, you can have all the facts right. Look, Paul wasn't saying, hey, just go to the temple of Aphrodite and, you know, just hang out with the naked temple prostitutes and have a Baal burger. That wasn't what he was saying. But he was saying if somebody takes the meat from the temple and brings it to their house 
And just because it's meat from the temple and you've got opportunity to minister to them, sit down and have a meal with them. Don't compromise the gospel. Don't compromise your walk and witness. But just because there's a glass of wine on the table, nobody's going to lose their salvation over it. But if you're the only Christian sitting there with your family, who do you think is going to pray over that meal? Who, who do you think is going to show them the, the love of God? So keep your legalism in your pocket. Speak the truth and love to them. You'll, you'll have ample opportunity to help them understand that that's probably not the best thing in the world because every drop of alcohol that goes into their system is poison. But when they don't know the Lord, they don't know that. And so you banging on all of their sinful issues endlessly, hitting them with that hammer of righteousness, probably is not going to have a whole lot of effect. You love on them first and let the love of God draw them to repentance. Figure out some way to talk to them. And again, I'm not suggesting you sit in the middle of a drunken mess at a bar and sully yourself. But when you have an opportunity to be near people who desperately need the Lord, and it is a neutral environment where it is not clearly carnal, but there's a handful of things going on that maybe are not quite the way the Lord would have them go, tell them about Jesus. By the way you live, by what you do, you know, when you're sitting with the family and you're all gathered around and every one of them's drinking and you're, well, you know, I really don't do that. And you don't say, well, I don't do that. <laughs> you see, there's two ways I just said the same thing, isn't there? One leaves open the question, well, why? Oh, the Lord delivered me. And I'm so grateful to the Lord for what he's done in my life. You know, I don't miss it a bit. There's nothing that that alcohol's ever done for me other than destroy my life. You see, one allows them to come to the conclusion that maybe that's not the best thing for them. The other just simply condemns them because they're doing something that you don't approve of. The truth in love. Not just the truth. The truth is every drop of alcohol is poison. Medically, every drop of alcohol is poison. Every drop. No amount of alcohol is good for any human being. Medically. But if you just sit there, well, you know, my doctor said. <laughs> but if it comes from your heart, because you love them, very different story, isn't it? You see, you allow God to work through you. Because love outranks that knowledge. You know that where they're going is the wrong direction. You know that what they're doing is going to be painful. The great Dr. D.A. Carlson said this. He said, our salutary emphasis on truth and knowledge must never succumb to an intellectual arrogance that assigns a small importance to the self-denying love for those who do not know as much. That's a man with three earned PhDs. So you, you, you can't get to that place to where it's all about information. It's just about knowledge. Paul saw that this group in this church was actually lacking in love of God and love for one another. That was the real problem. He says, look, you're, if we take this same meat and we take it to somebody's private home, if you're a believer, you know that that meat has no power over you. It's just a steak. It's barbecue. It's a burger. Your eternal destiny is not going to be determined by whether you 
you know, sucked back a quarter pounder with cheese. Which, by the way, I'm a little hungry right now. (laughs) We get all hung up on this stuff instead of getting hung up on Jesus. Falling deeply in love with Jesus and seeing other people as we should see ourselves because we used to be exactly as they are. Isn't it funny how when you get delivered from something, all of a sudden you look at that same issue in somebody else's life and you go, oh man. How in the world could you ever get yourself into that mess? Not the same way you did. The lies of the enemy acted out. You see, knowledge places the emphasis on the knower. But love draws our attention to the one who's loved. Isn't that crazy? Knowledge is on the knower. I bumped into so many people, it's, it's, it's almost laughable. You know, I've gotten business cards that have to have three sides because there's so many, you know, letters after the person's name. Yes, I'm the first and third and second, fourth vice president of the third section of the company and I have a PhD, a THD, a BHD and a ABC one, two, three KFC. I you know you know and you look at the cards like man you just bow before their superiority, you know what I mean? But see knowledge draws attention to the knower. But the love of God draws people towards the one who loves them. God wants us to be like that. Knowledge attempts to define love. But love makes use of its actions to refine who we are. In that sense, knowledge actually is supposed to serve love, not the other way around. So very often we have it backwards. And so we run around in our little veneer of legalism. And we use that as the the covering, the very thin covering for why we fail to live lives of love towards those who don't know Christ. You know, driving down PCH, we got some we got some strange folks in Lomita. And some of them claim to be, you know, just on fire for God. There's these three guys that have this ongoing battle as to whose sign can get tallest. You know, it started out like, repent, the kingdom of God is at hand. They thought they were John the Baptist or something, I guess. And they've added like successive layers of PVC pipe and signs on there. And now it's like, the one guy's got like a 12-footer. And so I guess he's just more holy than the eight-foot-tall sign guy. And sometimes they're on opposite corners. And they're like dueling for righteousness. Can I tell you something? I have never once seen either one of those guys share the gospel with anybody. Because nobody wants to be near them. Because whatever they got, nobody wants because it is so unloving it paints God out to be this absolutely animalistic hater of everything God loves people and we're supposed to tell them that we're supposed to be those emissaries that just wander around and again speak the truth in love Make no mistake what I'm saying here. God's character is not changed. I change not, says the Lord. So he is still holy. But if you thrust the holiness of God into the face of someone who doesn't know him, the only thing they can do is either cower in fear or run away. It's the love of God that draws them. It's not legalism. You might scare somebody, 
basically, God doesn't want you to be a spiritual windbag. Because that knowledge puffs up. Look, let's be, let's be blunt. Nobody can know everything. And nobody does know everything except for God. And so the person who claims to know everything about God doesn't know anything at all. And that's exactly what the Apostle Paul says about God. So if you think you know him all that well, you probably don't know much. I tell people frequently and often, it is amazing to me in this stage in ministry, three decades of doing this, that I'm still amazed that, man, I need to grow in that area. I need to rethink the way I think about that subject. I need to take 30 seconds and ponder the goodness of the Lord before I speak instead of after. What Paul follows with in verse 4 could be applied to pretty much any situation in our modern world. It wouldn't matter what you stick in there. The thing of food being offered to idols. You see, they lived in an actually polytheistic culture and society. And while most people in our day and time are generally monotheists, most people have some concept of, of a god. You have a few polytheists in the world. Hinduism certainly falls into that category. But most people at least have some idea of a supreme being. And so what the Apostle Paul is, we need to remember who God is. It's Satan that's the power behind all these little gods. Satan's the power behind materialism. Satan's the power behind the opioid crisis. Satan is the power behind pornography. Satan is the power behind all those things. So while none of us in here would probably proclaim that we actually believe in polytheism, the world actually still has a very clear view of polytheism. It's just that it comes out in other things. Because that to which you give your worship is your God. So people will say, well, I don't. Yes, you do. And here's how I can tell you, you can figure it out for yourself. That to which you dedicate your time, your talent, your treasure, and your worship, that's your God. What you spend your time, your talents, your treasure, and your worship, that's your God. Now tell me if you know people in your life that worship some other God than Yahweh, Lord of hosts, Jesus Christ, the Son. I do. I worship all kinds of false gods. They wouldn't call them a false god, but they dedicate their time, their talent, their treasure, and their worship to something other than the Lord. Who's your God? Who is your God? Who is our God? Christian theology says there is but one. Comes in three persons. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. But not everyone knows that. But it is your job to help them see him. So all these other things that we do that kind of frighten people away from knowing the one true, the one God in three persons, meeting Jesus Christ, all the things that we do that steer people away from that end goal is antithetical to the purpose for which you still exist on this planet. You exist on this planet to make Christ known. To go and make disciples of all nations. That's your goal. When you got saved, you became a great commission kid. You're supposed to go, therefore, into all the world. And your world may be right around your home. Your world may be down the street. It may be at work. It may be someplace around the world. But we've all been given the same commission. The great commission is to all disciples, by the way. 
not to just a handful of people who call themselves evangelists. It's to all of us. We're to tell them about the one God. And so if we're wounding the weak conscience of people who don't yet know him or the weak conscience of people who do know him, we are defeating the purpose of discipleship. Because a disciple is one who sits under the teaching of someone else. A disciple is a learner. When Jesus was frequently and often called Rabboni, or rabbi, it simply means teacher. And a teacher teaches, amen? And so they were called his disciples for the purpose of, they called him Rabboni. Whatever you know, we want to know. And whatever we have learned, we want to teach. That's what it means to disciple. You can't make disciples of the God who loves the whole world by being unloving. Because that will outspeak all of your mental knowledge. That will overthrow every wonderfully prepared Bible study you do. If you lose the love of God, you've lost the one thing by which the Bible says we are defined. All men will know that you are my disciples if you have love one for another. It's a defining characteristic. And so when the church becomes unloving, and the church just becomes legalistic, we lose basic theology. Because we're making known the God who loves the whole world. Amen? For God so loved the whole world that he gave his only begotten son. Amen? Amen. Not that he just loved really righteous people. Not that he just loved the church. Not that he loved people who were on fire for Jesus. God loves lost sinners. God loves wandering sheep. Those stories, the lost coin, the lost sheep, the lost boy, the lost son, the prodigal, why do you think those are in the Bible? Because God loves finding lost things. Think about the prodigal. The father made himself nearly naked, shamed himself, and ran down the road to his still filthy son, who stunk to high heaven because he'd spent the night in a pigsty. That doesn't sound like Boy, you better get cleaned up. You want to come home. That was all, please come home, and I'll help you get cleaned up. Do you see the difference between those two things? You see, the legalist says, you clean yourself up, and I'll talk to you. The lover of men's souls says, let me help you get cleaned up. Let me wash the dirt off your feet. Let me touch you where you need to be touched. You might be unclean, but Christ loves you. And I want to love you the way he loves you. The truth is, family, we are free indeed. Amen? We are free indeed. We are free to love the unlovable. We are free to touch the untouchable. We are free to do the undoable. We are free to make possible the impossible. To be free indeed is to be empowered by the one who is freedom. So we cannot ever let our freedom destroy someone else. Our freedom is to be used for his purposes. So those things which you have the ability to say, well, this is a liberty you should never do if it's going to destroy someone else. You understand what I just said? If it destroys someone else, in Jesus' name, don't do it. 
Now, in saying that, I'm agreeing with the Apostle Paul. And I'm telling you, that's going to eliminate an awful lot of things off of your repertoire in this world. You're going to pull things off the plate. It's like, well, I can do that, but should I do that? If it destroys those for whom, notice what it says, Christ died. I won't even eat a ball burger. I won't take my freedom and use it as a way to beat someone else up. I won't put them in harm's way because I have a liberty. I'm not going to exercise that liberty because it might hurt them. It won't hurt me, but it might hurt them. We've got to be careful. And there is no place that this comes into view more prominently than if you were here tonight and you were a parent. Because the liberties that you take at home, you teach your children. The things that you say, oh, well, I can just, well, we can do this because we are parents. You are teaching your children that there is a different kind of Christianity for adults than there is for kids. Do you hear what I just said? Does God change who he is because you're an adult versus a child? No, he does not. You have liberties as an adult that maybe a child may not have, but your children should never see you exercise those liberties if they are going to harm your child. That's going to take a bunch of things off the table, family. Oh, yeah, you can do all kinds of things. But should you? Because you are training them up in the way that they shall go so that when they get old, they'll not depart from it. But if you're ingraining their mind with your liberties, then you are training them to be in harm's way. So you be really careful about what you do at home. And I'm not trying to beat you up. I'm trying to tell you this is how important this is. If Christian moms and dads would raise their own children in a way that fears the Lord, recognizing that what you do and say, there is no one who has more power over your children than you do. You can surrender it to the school district. You can surrender it to the state. Or you can take it very seriously in your own home at your own dinner table. Don't let your freedom destroy those for whom Christ has died. Give it up. It's not worth it. Look, the image here is food. Food's neutral. It's neither good nor bad. You know, I'm telling you, if you eat a half a ton of broccoli, you're still going to die. Just because broccoli's good for you and it's got lots of vitamin A in it, so it's not the foods that's the problem. It's what you do with the food. And it's the same thing with every single thing in your life. If it isn't inherently sinful, it is what you do with it that makes it right or wrong. So do what's right with it. Meat can't bring you closer to God. But it can push somebody away. That glass of wine or beer won't bring you closer to God, but it can push somebody away. That cigarette can't bring you closer to God, but it can push somebody away. Those words that come out of your mouth, that's adult talk, can't draw anybody to Christ, but they can push somebody away. Be careful what you do with your freedoms. Oh, you can make these, I had a rough day at work. Did you have so rough a day at work that you have the right to cause your children to believe that Jesus uses words like that? Don't let your freedom ever destroy those for whom Christ died. Who did he die for? The whole world. Believers and not believers. 
effective for those who believe because you've received the grace gift and you get the reward. But he died for everybody. And final thing, we'll close. Set some biblical boundaries. There are three controls that we have in our lives. The Word of God. The Word of God helps you with these things. The Holy Spirit that's inside of each one of you as a believer. And the third thing is the thing that Paul's talking about. Our love. The Word of God in love. The Holy Spirit, the power of the Holy Spirit in love. The love that God has for you that flows out of you because it's his love. We need to take that seriously as we walk in this world. And he closes, he says, For if anyone sees you who have knowledge eating in an idol's temple, will not the conscience of him who is weak be emboldened to eat those things offered to idols? Look, let's be clear. No one goes to heaven because of what they do or don't do. We go to heaven because we receive the grace of God and the forgiveness of God. But how many people are pushed away from that grace gift? How many people are shoved away from the free gift of life in Christ Jesus because they've watched someone who professes to be a believer be antithetical to what the Bible says a believer should be? You need to set some biblical boundaries in your life. And as much as you possibly can, you need to be what Scripture says we ought to be as the body of Christ, and so do I. I'm to be a doer of the word, not a hearer only, deceiving myself. We set some boundaries. You say, I won't do anything if it pushes people away from God's grace. If Christ was willing, think of this for a second. Maybe you're here tonight and say, oh man, that kind of almost sounded legalistic to me. Let me make it really clear for you, if that's you. Christ willingly gave up everything for you. He didn't just kind of give up smoking. He didn't just give up eating bacon-wrapped bacon. He, he, He didn't just give up being you know, a really nice guy. He gave up the glories of heaven. He put off his heavenly raiment, the glory that he had been cloaked with from the beginning of the beginning. The Apostle Paul said he did not consider it robbery to make himself of no account for me. So if Jesus, my Savior, can put that off, can I not willingly give up some things so that other people can know Jesus? We sure can. Be careful with your liberties. Don't violate your conscience. Don't force people to violate theirs. Leave people in the hands of Jesus and let the Holy Spirit do the Holy Spirit's job of convicting of sin and righteousness exactly as John 16, 8 says. That's our call. To walk as he walked, to be as he was and is, and to show people the love of God. If we do that, I won't have to violate my conscience. I won't be tempted to do things I shouldn't do. I'll live a life that's pleasing to him. And I guarantee you that anything you give up in this life, you will not miss in the next. Amen? Would you stand with me and we'll close in prayer. Pastors are going to come up and Be available for prayer if you need prayer, and then we'll close in song. Father, we thank you. Father, I thank you for delivering me, for delivering us from ourselves, or from the bondage of sin 
and death. Lord, that you would call us your own beloved, that you would adopt us into your family. God, help us to deal with our freedoms in a way that speaks your name, that professes your love. Lord, help us to give up anything and everything if it hinders someone from coming to you. God, would we gladly give those things up. And Lord, we thank you for our freedom that we have in you. And so, Lord, we're grateful that you have blessed us and given us rich, abundant lives. And we pray that those lives would be marked for you, for your kingdom's work. Lord, bless us as your church. And now send us with joy. Lord, fill us with joy as we endeavor to walk with you. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen.